0: is 2nd Samuel chapter 14 verses 1 through 24. Now Joab the son of Zariah knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom and Joab sent to, to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant has two sons. And they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one there to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who has struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my, my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and, give orders concerning and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he he shall never touch you again. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son be not destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, Not one hair on your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, The word of my lord the king set me at rest for my lord the king is like the angel of god to discern good and evil the lord your god be with you and the king answered the woman do not hide from me anything i ask you and the woman said let my lord the king speak the king said is the hand of joab with you in all this the woman answered and said as surely as you live my lord the king one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left, from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant in order that to change the course of the things your servant Joab did this. But my lord has, has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom, And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in in that the king has granted this request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the the king's presence. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here together as your people for the the joy to worship you and to be taught from your word. We thank you um, for the gift of your word and pray that you would just give Mark your words to share with us that we might be built up and strengthened uh, to be your people in, in this world that you've created. We pray that you would help us, that you would change us. And strengthen us through your word now um, for your glory and to go out and share your good news uh, to the people that you put in our paths. Amen.
1: Well, good morning. I always like saying it now. makes us see. Keeps things traditionally in tune, right? Well, we're glad that you're here with us this morning. And as always... We're continuing through 2 Samuel, taking it one step at a time, one passage at a time, and how excuse me, seeing how God uses horrible situations and sin, even that to continue to work in people's lives, to teach them, to train them, but ultimately to point us to Christ, the true Messiah, the true and better David, if you want to say, I mean, use those words. Now the last few chapters of 2 Samuel, have revealed the slippery slope that entangles those who continue down the path of sinful rebellion. And David's lustful passions leads to Bathsheba's pregnancy, ending in Uriah's murder. And until the prophet Nathan comes, there's no indication that David has any intention of repenting of his sins. And just when one thinks the devastation caused by David's sin is over because he repents and he asks for forgiveness and he strives to move forward and face the consequences even of his sin. Amnon rapes Tamar, leading to Absalom's murder of Amnon. David's two sons have now followed in their father's footsteps of sin, not only copying their father, Um, but it's fulfilling the prophecy of God that the sword would not leave David's family because of David's sin. So three years have passed. Remember that Absalom killed Amnon. He waited two years, then killed Amnon, fled uh, to his grandfather's place, to his family's house, And he stayed there for three years. And still, David, over those three years, which as a father, I understand this, is his spirit, it says, his spirit longs to go to Absalom. He misses his son. He misses seeing him and talking to him. And so much so that Joab, his commander, his army's commander, knows that the king's heart goes out to his son, and so he devises a plan in order to convince David to allow Absalom to come back into the fold, because despite the fact that David is longing to see his son, he has not called for his son to come before him. So wisdom, or the lack of it, is probably a better way to say that, plays a vital role in how this scene unfolds. In fact, the only time wisdom is spoken of is by the woman from Tekoa. That's all we know her as, is the woman. And she proclaims David's wisdom, which is ironic. It's ironic considering everything that happens before um, as she tells her story, and we're going to get there. Um, But wisdom plays a vital role, or lack of wisdom plays a vital role in this As this scene unfolds, is it wise to allow Absalom to come back home? What is David's source of wisdom in making that decision? Who does he go to? Who does he listen to? And then when Absalom does return, spoiler alert, at the end, what is the source then of his wisdom in the decisions that he makes? And finally, putting all of that together... What are the consequences for failing to actually trust in true wisdom? Or as you'll hear me say, true truth. And it's, we have to say that nowadays because truth and wisdom today depends on did you eat enough breakfast? I know that's minimizing, but that's basically what it is. How do you feel today? What is your truth? And whatever your truth is, that's the truth. And whatever my truth is, is that's the truth. Now, the problem with that is you can't have two truths be polar opposites. My truth is that I'm a monkey. Your truth is that you're a human being. I'll be nice. Unfortunately, we're both human beings. My truth, because I think that, does not make it true. Just because David thinks this does not make it true. Just because Absalom thinks this or reacts this way does not make it true. And so the question we have to ask is, Where is this wisdom coming from, that they're making these decisions? Where should it come from? And then what does that teach us today? So, let's start with David. What is David's source of wisdom? Well, it's a, and I'll use this loosely, wise woman from Tekoa. Joab convinces this woman to play a similar role that Nathan played after the incident of Bathsheba and Uriah. She enters the king's presence, presence, and she tells a story about her two sons, one who has killed the other. And now the community wants to put the other son to death, leaving her alone with no heir. And so first, she taps into David's emotions. Just like Absalom and Amnon, her two sons have quarreled, and had no one to separate them. There was no one to separate Absalom and Amnon. And the end result is that one kills the other. Now remember, these are actually the words of Joab, because Joab put these words into her mouth, and he knows how much the heart of David longed for his son. And so David's emotions are being used in order to convince him to allow Absalom to return home because after all he's next in line because remember Amnon was the oldest and Absalom is the second oldest now we may say we hear this we go well isn't that what Nathan did he tapped into David's emotions as a shepherd not as a father but as a shepherd remember he told a story about a precious lamb being forcefully taken and cooked to feed a guest and if we remember David reacted in two ways. First, he reacted emotionally, proclaiming that the, de- proclaim the death penalty for the one who took the lamb, but then he reacted legally by proclaiming the biblical law of restoration. Now, this is where these two scenes differ, because David's are, emotions are tapped into both, but, but, but while one appeals to biblical law, the other appeals to biblical law taken out of context. We've never heard the Bible taken out of context today, have we? Ever. So when the f- woman finally gets to the point of her story, she says this in verses 13 and 14. For in giving this decision, because remember, he says, No one will ever touch you, uh, touch your son, and if they do, and if they, they mess with you, then come talk to me and I'll take care of it. She says, For in giving this decision, the king convinces, convicts himself, which is very similar to what Nathan said. To, to, uh, to David, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again, that is Absalom, you're not bringing him back home. And then she says, God will not take away a life. He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. So what she's doing here is actually appealing to a law in Numbers 35, which allows for someone who kills unintentionally, as it seems like her two sons did, Now, remember, this is all fake. This isn't real. She's telling a story. The law allows for someone who kills unintentionally to be able to flee to a city of refuge and not be killed by the avenger of blood, thus saving his life, thus saving the heir of the family, thus still providing or having a a provision for the mom, for the woman, to have somebody take care of her. Now, this obviously doesn't fit because... I don't know if this is a simile, metaphor, whatever it may be. The story is supposed to be about Absalom and Amnon. But it obviously doesn't fit Absalom's case because Absalom spent two years planning on how to kill his brother. It was very intentional. It was premeditated murder. She's taken a law of God which is good and taken it out of context But David is none the wiser. And did you catch? She kind of like goes, you are so wise, David. You're so wise. I know that you're a wise king. Had he stopped to seek the will of the Lord, had he stopped to seek even Nathan's advice, his prophet, then perhaps things would have gone differently. But because David allowed his emotions And this, quote-unquote, wise woman's lies to dictate his next move, he allows Absalom to come back to Jerusalem. Now, I, I I don't know about you, but as a father, or as if I saw this, say, you're preventing your son from coming back, why is this a bad thing to allow Absalom to come back to Jerusalem? Why would you ouster him and cut him out of the family or continue to cut him out of the family? You need to bring him back. Why? Well, because he's your son. You see how the emotions are being used here? So he allows Absalom to come back, which is going to have repercussions later on. But sometime between this moment and the time that Absalom actually came back to Jerusalem, David seems to have cleared his mind a bit and he refuses to see Absalom face-to-face, which really doesn't sit well with Absalom. And if there's anything we've learned, you get on the bad side of Absalom, bad things are gonna happen. So let's pick up in verse 25, 2 Samuel 14. So grab your Bibles or your Bible app. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 14, and I'm gonna read the rest of the chapter. Now this section is really about Absalom. So listen carefully as we read this to describe Absalom's character. Verse 25, Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his feet to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. I wonder why he named her Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. And when Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him, and he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. And then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has, he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. And Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. All right, so what is Absalom's source of wisdom? If right now, as far as David goes, the source of uh, David's wisdom is his emotions um, and this woman's wise woman's advice as she takes Scripture out of context. What is Absalom's source of wisdom? Not only is the king refusing to see Absalom, but now Joab is doing the same, which shows that he and Joab weren't like the best of friends. Why Joab suggested to bring him back was probably just to help David, but we're not told exactly why. And so Absalom's by himself for two years, never seeing the king. What is he to do? What source of wisdom does Absalom use to determine his next decisions? Well, the first hint is his... V- these very strange verses, verses 25 through 27. Isn't it? That's another rule. As you're reading Scripture, and you're reading the story, and all of a sudden, there's this strange couple of verses. There was no blemish on him from the foot of his soul to the top of his head. Right? That just seems odd, does it not? Or maybe it just seems to me. It's just odd. When you come across that, there's a reason for that in there. It wasn't just like God goes... You know, it would be really good to describe Absalom, just kind of what he looked like. There's a purpose behind these words. These verses describe Absalom as the most handsome in appearance in all Israel. And from the sole of his feet to the top of his head, there's no blemish to be found, which I've seen a lot of the bottoms of feet, and I don't care who you are, they're ugly. But what he's trying to say is, he's a vain man. He's a vain man. His hair is so lush and beautiful that they take a whole verse to describe it. Now there's there's repercussions because this is going to show actually how he dies. Again, spoiler alert, just read ahead a couple chapters. And to see how he how he is killed. But why so much focus on his looks? Well. This sounds very similar to something that we've heard in the past. In fact, in 1 Samuel, when the soon-to-be King Saul is described, he was ahead above all others. He was very handsome in appearance. He looked the part of king. Saul did. He looked the part of king. And yet, as his life goes on, he becomes king, and as his reign um, is described throughout the book of 1 Samuel, we find out he may look like a king, but he ain't acting like a king. His heart is dark, and eventually it comes out that he does not even follow God. The only time he repents of anything is when he gets caught. Well, so it is with Absalom. Absalom is the new Saul, and his decisions, his wisdom are founded in his vanity. Should I go old school? He thinks he's the bee's knees. He thinks he's all that. He thinks everyone should listen to him. And that goes to, uh, brings up then the second point. It points to another source of his wisdom, his arrogance, and his self-absorbed nature. When Joab twice refuses to speak to Absalom, I'll just call it. Absalom has a hissy fit. He gets upset. How dare you not listen to me? How dare you not pay attention to me? He acts out. And he sets fire to Joab's barley crop. Like, how old are you? You're not going to pay attention to me. I'm going to ruin your future. That barley is to feed Joab's family and he doesn't care, but he gets what he wants because it obviously works. Joab comes up, why did you set fire to my fields? Like, come on, what are you, what are you thinking? Absalom, by, by his actions, he forces a meeting then with the king by destroying another man's crops instead of seeking a, less, a much less invasive way of getting attention. Why could he not have gone to Joab himself? His arrogance and self-absorbed nature, his idea that he is the center of the world and needs to get what he wants, that is his source of wisdom. Not too far from where we are in our world today. I am the center, what I think is true, and if I don't get what I want, I'm going to make you pay because obviously what I want is right, and I don't care how it affects you. Absalom's source of wisdom, in the end, proves ill for him. And it proves ill for David, and ultimately for the nation as a whole. That type of attitude to have your wisdom be your vanity, your arrogance, your self absorbedness, I don't even know if that's a word, it leads to consequences for everyone around you. And when one fails to see or to trust in the true wisdom, what happens is it just leads to more and more sin. David trusted in his emotions. The half-truths of an unwise woman and the actions of a vain and petulant son. Does he do it out of guilt? Does he do it out of love? Well, one could say that he was only doing the best that he could with what he had at the time, David. How, how, do, I, how do I deal with this in a healthy way? I know my own sins. I know what I've messed up. Remember, constantly be reminded about his sin with Bathsheba and what he did to Uriah, seeing it in his own sons. I can understand his hesitation to step forward and to, to guide his sons and give them wisdom. He listened to these unwise, this false wisdom, when the source of true wisdom wisdom was actually already with him. Yes, he's facing the consequences of his sin, David is. But that does not mean that God has left him. What would have happened if David had trusted in the Lord and the truth of his word for wisdom? What if David had sought out the true meaning of the law that the woman spoke instead of taking her word for it? What if David had kept his emotions toward his son in check? What if David had refused to meet with his son who set a fire to a man's crops in order to get attention The most unsatisfying answer, we'll never know. Because that's not the point. The point is that he did none of those things. What we do know is that the results of his wisdom leads to no repentance from Absalom, no forgiveness from David, and no restoration between son and king. It does not accomplish what David hopes it accomplishes. This false wisdom leads only farther down a path of sin, leading to deception, tickled ears, rebellion, and treason. That's just a little highlight of the next couple of weeks. It's going to be really positive. The lesson that we find in this chapter can be found in a a really a simple question. What is the source of? What is your source of wisdom and truth? What is my source of wisdom and truth? David's failure to trust in the word of God for wisdom, whether that's through a scroll that he reads, whether it's through the law that was written on his heart, whether that is through Nathan the prophet, his failure to follow and trust the word of God for wisdom leads only to further sin And the same can be said for us today. Even as God's children, as Christians, we can easily slip into trusting our emotions or trusting those around us for wisdom. Now that is not to say, don't hear me say that emotions are bad. Oh, emotions are awesome. And it doesn't mean that if people give advice around you that that advice is bad. No, advice can be awesome. The question is, is how do we know if our emotions, or those around us are evil. How do we know? How do we know that this person is not taking Scripture out of context? The Word of God, the Word of God has the power to bless, guard, keep from sin, teach, and not put to shame those who seek after God. And that's just the first seven verses of Psalm 119. You want to know what the Word of God can do? Read the entire Psalm 119. The Word of God is living and active, cutting to the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. Christ is called the Word of God in the flesh and is the only source of eternal life. He is the light of truth, which shines in a world of darkness and falsehood. He is the Word of God, incarnate. To repent of our sins, receive forgiveness for those sins, and to be restored to a relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, it is only found in Christ. That's John 1. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through faith, trust, and belief in Him. That's John 14.6. I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. The reason I'm saying this is, all these verses is the Bible says over and over and over and over again, trust in the Word. Trust in the Word. Trust in this. This book, these words, are the actual life-giving, truth-expounding wisdom, giving words of the God of all of creation. And He gave it to us. He gave it to us to read. And if these are the words of God, maybe we should pay really close attention to what he has to say. Because these are words of life. These are words of conviction. And whether it's life or conviction, which all leads ultimately to life, he gives us his word to point us to him. That's why we at Elm Creek, we say that if we disagree with the Word of God, then the problem does not lie with the Word of God. I am the last one to stand before you and say, well, God didn't really mean that. Because then lightning will come down and strike me, figuratively or literally. This is the Word of God. And as His people, we want to know and understand What he wants for us, knowing that every word of his is good for us as his people. The problem, if I disagree, does not lie with the word of God. It lies in my misunderstanding or my refusal to understand his word. And that puts the onus on me. It puts it on me. Why do I strive as your pastor to say things like, if something is repeated, it's probably important. If you see a weird passage and verses, you're try to figure out, wrestle, what does this mean? Because my desire is for you to go home this week and read the Word of God and learn what it has to say and submit yourself underneath it to make it say what it says not what we want it to say our emotions the advice of others has to be subservient to the source of true wisdom and true truth it has to be if david had heard these women's these women's word this woman's words and said actually that's not what that law says it says this, and Absalom premeditated murder for two years. This That does not fit. Then either a conversation would ensue or the woman would be quiet. Our emotions and the advice that we hear always must be subservient to the source of true wisdom and true truth, God and his revealed word. Which is why I say, if I say anything contrary to the word of God, may I be anathema. May I be cut off. Maybe I should add purposely, because if I say something wrong, I want to be corrected of that, as we all should be. So the final question, I have to ask this question. Did, Did Absalom seek a true restoration with David? I mean, that was the whole point of this, right? He wanted to get back into David's good graces. So Does Absalom, does he really seek a true restoration with David? Or does it happen? Well, the bowing before the king and David's kissing his son at the end of the chapter are uh, are just two people doing an action with no heart. You say, well, how can you say that? Well, i read the next chapter. There's no real reconciliation because Absalom spends the next four years, he is a patient man, he spends the next four years tickling the ears of and stealing the hearts of the people away from David. Four years. If Absalom desires true restoration with his father, it has to start with his repentance. Absalom must admit that what he did was a sin against God. Now, perhaps he felt justified in killing his brother because David didn't do anything. But pleas of innocence should be made before the king, not taking into your own hands. And if he truly desires to repent, he would have found forgiveness from his father because if there is anybody who's going to show forgiveness, it's someone who understands the same sin. David did what Absalom did. He gets it. And if repentance was true, David would have forgiven him in a second then and only then would restoration have happened. And so so it is with us. Now the beauty of this, this passage is David is a flawed man. He is a flawed king. And he and his actions point us to the true king, Jesus Christ. True wisdom is found only in the word of God which tells us that if we come to the King, if we come to Christ with a repentant heart, we will find the forgiveness that we seek. If we realize that we have sinned, that we have, to use biblical terms, our relationship with God is seen as a marriage, and we have committed adultery and prostituted ourselves away from God, and that has to be restored. It started with Adam and Eve, and we perpetuate the problem. So, something has to happen, and we need to admit God, I have adulterously rebelled against you as my king. I deserve death. I deserve it. But I'm seeking life in you. That's a repentant heart. And if we go to God in that way, what does the Bible say? He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He cleans us as white as snow. He forgives. Christ will not hesitate to forgive a heart that truly desires to turn from sin, from vanity and selfishness, from arrogance and self-centeredness. Only in seeking Christ will we find true wisdom true restoration with God, and true eternal life. See, unlike David, if we come to him with a heart that is not desiring to repent, he will not even see us. He will not call us into his presence. But if our heart is repentant, if we recognize, as I said, how much we have offended our holy God, the doors are opened, the way to the throne room is made, and you walk with confidence, and you say, forgive me, and Christ goes, come into my arms. You're forgiven. And not just this, but all your sins. And guess what? Past, present, future, which means you will always be my son, and you will always be in my presence. You will always be my daughter, and I will never turn you away because I have fully restored you to me. Christ is the better David. Where David failed, Christ succeeded. That kind of seems to be a a repeating theme over and over again in 1 and 2 Samuel, doesn't it? As believers who are restored and reconciled to God by the blood and sacrifice of Christ, if that is who we are, if we are believers, we stand in confidence not in ourselves but in Him. I mean, what what better way to, s- to say? I am a child of God. Well, how do you know? Well, because he's forgiven me despite me. He's forgiven me despite my sin because he knows my heart is repentant and he's restored me to him. My confidence is in him, not in me. We come to the table. When we do communion together, as believers, it is a reminder to us that we did not save ourselves from the wrath of God for our sins (laughs) it was bought with a price it was paid our debt was paid he did not restore uh, we did not restore ourselves to God he did it by the willing sacrifice of Christ upon the cross and so our time this morning at the table if you're a believer our time at the table is a time of celebration Yeah, if there's confessed sin that has kind of gotten in the way of your relationship? It hasn't ended your relationship with God, but it's gotten in the way. Then, yeah, just confess that sin to God and go to Him and realize that He's forgiven it all. He's not holding it against you. And so we go to Him celebrating and praising Him. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did, for saving me. And we come to the table confidently, and we sit down and we're praying to Him in celebration and joy, but if you have yet to believe in Christ and you find that you're trusting in your own wisdom and truth, your own arrogance, we talked about this at men's breakfast yesterday. Of, It's too simple, isn't it? Repent and believe and you will be saved. I've got, I've got to do something, right? It's got to be Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus something else, and we'll talk about that next week, is called false teaching and a false gospel and leads to death and not life. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin. Receive reconciliation with the Father in heaven, and he will make you his son or daughter, never to remove you from his presence. So that's why we ask that when you come to the table, you don't have to be a member of Elm Creek. We don't have communion, please. What we ask is that you have a relationship with Christ that you are saved by grace through faith, not of your own works, so that we can't boast and we come and we take the community together and we remember what Christ did. That's why he says, do this in remembrance of me. I shed my blood for you and I gave my life for you so that you might live. I took the death that you deserved willingly upon myself with joy, knowing that my Father would be glorified and you would be saved. So if that is true about you, you're welcome to join us. If you haven't, we ask that you refrain. This is a, we take this seriously, even though it's a celebration, because only those who were saved by grace through Christ can fully understand the meaning of this bread and this cup and can fully give glory to God, despite what happened last week, despite what's going to happen in the future. For we know we are children of God. Amen? Amen. So when you are ready, we're start the line back there grab your bread grab a cup go back to your seat, spend some time in quiet reflection and then together as a family of God we're going to take communion and give praise to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so come when you're ready